Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Premonition, a ghost story. Written by Lewis Darley and narrated by Tony Walker. Sarah, wake up. It was late, past midnight at least. Sarah's school uniform was left neatly ironed on the chair under her desk. She still had at least five or six hours before her alarm went off, until she had to be ready for the next day of class. Sarah! Another whisper penetrating the silence. Sarah rose groggily, letting her eyes adjust slowly to the surrounding darkness. Dad! she croaked, her throat still in its sleep state, still unsure as to how to process sounds. Sarah's dad was sitting at the bottom of her bed. He was smiling, although a sad, gentle smile. His face was softly illuminated by the moonlight piercing through a small gap where the curtains hadn't met properly. Despite her tiredness, Sarah was excited to see her father no matter the hour. She had been visiting him every day, bringing him fruit, telling him stories about her day at school. He would tire easily, often falling asleep in the middle of a conversation. Mum would gently shush her away, and they would tiptoe across the lino floor so as not to wake him. It was wonderful to see him upright, so animated, so awake. She had so many things to tell him. Listen, kiddo, soothed Dad. I've come to say goodbye. There's not enough time to say everything I wanted to say. He began to gesture as though attempting to navigate his train of thought. Puzzled, Sarah leant closer to her father. How was he even standing with her now, and why at this time? The last time she had seen him, he had been plugged into a bed. The nurse had explained to her it was called a drip, putting important medicines directly into his blood, and he had been so weak, too. His legs had gotten so thin from lying on the bed for so long. Mum said he would need lots of practice to get big and strong again. In fact, the last time Sarah had seen him stand, he had rested his hands on the side of a chair to steady himself. His entire body had shook, and yet here he was, upright, calm, strong and still, Dad, Sarah began, almost questioning his presence. Just know that you are so loved, the dad continued, and you get through this, already so brave. Sarah raised her hands to touch his face. It was cold, pallid to the touch. He kissed the top of her head and rose to stand, walking towards the door. He motioned to open it and turned to face his daughter one last time. Be strong for Mum, he said. Dad! She leaned over to the lamp on her bedside table and switched it on. The light flared, blindingly white. Sarah rubbed the spots from her eyes as they adjusted. The door was closed. He had been there. She had felt the weight of him on the foot of her bed, and yet he was gone. It had been nine years since Sarah saw her father in her room, and nine years since he had passed away. In the intervening years, the phenomenon had been explained away, helpfully and carefully, by both her mother and a grief counsellor. The counsellor had explained that even as a young child, not properly versed on the extent of her father's illness, that she would have had some unconscious fear of him no longer being around, 
What she remembered as her father coming to say one last goodbye was simply imagined in that half-lucid dream state between being awake and asleep, and it had terribly, tragically coincided with her father's actual passing. Whilst not initially terribly convinced by this explanation, as the years passed, Sarah thought it easier to at least outwardly accept it. The shared sense of grief was enough. Her mother's overbearing worrying about her needed to be placated somehow. As she grew, the phenomenon had receded into a vague childhood memory, though there was always that small inclination and instinct that there was something other beyond the simple rules of the living and the dead. Sarah began to gingerly drink a canned mojito in the shared kitchen of her small cramped student accommodation. It was still only one of the very first weeks. Her course hadn't even started yet. Time seemed to have the habit of being hard to pinpoint accurately when the days were so monotonous. Her flat was on the eleventh floor of a narrow tower block overlooking the main road in the centre of Bristol. It housed 2,000 students in 250 separate flats. There were 14 floors and, worryingly, only around six or seven washing machines. Despite the dankness of the kitchen, she was relishing the freedom. Her peers were currently unknown qualities. She had heard people often found their best friends at university, though she'd heard horror stories too, of people with unpleasant and extreme clashes of personality. These people could either be the maid of honour at her wedding, or someone she wouldn't even waste a Christmas card on. The girl adjacent to Sarah's room, Andrea, was very much the ringleader of this new group and Sarah had yet to determine what side of the spectrum she would fall into. Andrew was a couple of years older, all beads and bracelets and stick-and-poke tattoos, an explosion of frizzy blonde hair, ready to begin her first year studying English literature. She was adamant to tell everyone how much she had really lived, despite her young age. She had already travelled around the world to Australia and New Zealand and then to Southeast Asia to Vietnam and Cambodia. In the short time Sarah had known her, she was already versed in a huge number of Andrea's life experiences. When she talked, it was not so much a conversation, but more of an assault. I say we go past the bear pit down Crofter's rights, announced Andrea. There's a jazz bar called the Left Bank. It's cheap entry with live music, and I know someone who works there, so we may get in for free. Andrea looked immensely pleased with herself, relishing the attention, and proud she had already established a familiarity and connections in the new city that she found herself in. The rest of the group all agreed awkwardly, nobody having lived in the city long enough to counter it with another suggestion. The crowd in the kitchen all piled into a cramped lift, red cups of cheap vodka in hand, ready to meet the freezing winds of the streets below. As it happened, none of the group were particularly dressed for the cold. Sarah found the wind harsh and sharp, wishing she had brought a jacket with her. Andrea strode confidently ahead of the group, seemingly impervious to the weather, flanked by three young men doing the same course that she'd met in Freshers, all desperately and immediately in love with her. As such, nobody paid any particular attention to Sarah, who lagged behind at a considerable distance from the gaggle, consciously attempting to quicken her pace. 
Sarah turned to face the towering, brutalist student halls that so obtrusively invaded the Bristol skyline. It had an ugly, imposing presence, all dark brick, almost devoid of light. Scaffolding clambered against the front of the building like ivy. It always seemed in a permanent state of disrepair. In the daylight, workmen danced precariously across narrow walkways, matchstick men fruitlessly attempting to strengthen the decaying structure. Rumours of falling masonry and tiling only served to solidify the image that the building had long ago lost any sense of security it may once have had. It seemed outrageous to Sarah how expensive it was to live there, seeing as though it seemed an evening of strong winds may collapse the structure entirely. She felt glad to be away from the place for a couple of hours. Inside the flats the air was heavy and oppressive, weighed down by stale smoke and damp. As cold as it was, the fresh winds speeding past them across the busy streets were a welcome release. The route to the desired location involved passing through a couple of underpasses that met in the middle of a wide roundabout known locally as the Bear Pit. Sarah knew there was strength in numbers when walking through a city as a young woman, but she felt no such solidarity with this new group who had powered ahead. She felt eyes on her, homeless men primarily asking for any shrapnel. The Bear Pit sat like a moor in the middle of a winding road as though the city itself was hungry, teeth and tendrils scouring the narrow walkways and hidden passages for new blood. Sarah wondered how many new faces got lost every year. Her hometown had been dull and uneventful, but ultimately safe, a middle-class haven of Union Jack bunting and artisan bakeries. It embarrassed her that it had taken this long to even consider the people society had so willingly turned its back on. Facing the homeless, she meekly lied about the change in her pocket, insisting that she had nothing to give, before continuing to hurry herself after Andrea's exodus. As they traipsed the steps away from the underpass, Sarah felt herself getting lost in the vastness of people that spilled out of the many pubs and clubs that held residency on the long street. It was mainly other students, all drunk or high from their respective pre-drinks parties, lolloping off the edge of the pavements onto the road, searching for a good night. Some of these young men called after her, overconfident and overzealous, egging each other on. Come with us, we're much more fun. Go my way, I'll show you a good time. Sarah reddened, embarrassed and angry. She looked ahead to Andrea, apparently oblivious to the three love-struck men trailing after her. Did she enjoy that kind of attention? How was she able to laugh it off and not find it so lecherous or desperate? She swilled the dregs of her cheap vodka from her red plastic cup, tipping it down the drain as she walked. Finally they reached the promised land of the left bank. It was a small club with a dark interior Loud jazz music blared from the entrance as the bouncers slowly ushered people inside. Andrea powered past the queue, ignoring the protests of those who had been waiting, and began to work her charm, reeling off her practised speech about knowing staff members who had promised her free entry. The three men attached to her all smiled excitedly as the bouncer shrugged, stood aside, and let them all in. Sarah hung back. She took another glance inside the club as Andrea and her entourage swanned inside. The city howled and called out. 
Something inside her, something instinctive and primal, was willing her to abandon the night and walk back the way she came. None of them had gestured for her to follow, or even looked back at all. It looked fun, certainly, but Sarah reasoned she would simply go another time, with a group that noticed if she was there or not. She hadn't the patience or even the confidence to spend a night being ignored, or as a decoration to pad out the numbers of Andrea's group. She turned round and decided to retrace her steps back towards her halls. Quiet one tonight, she thought. There's still plenty of time to put myself out there. The walk back had taken far less time now she vaguely knew the route. Mercifully, there was now nobody calling after her, as the swathes of students that had blocked the streets on the way in had now found their own destinations for their own nights out. She crossed under the road in the underpass of the bear pit roundabout, making her way down the steps. Sarah was surprised to find that the tunnel and space was completely empty, whereas it had been almost a tableau of Bristol nightlife mere minutes before. The fluorescent lights above her hummed noisily, shuddering over the rich tapestry of graffiti that peppered the flaking old paint plastered atop concrete walls. She marched through, aiming towards the steps on the other side. There will be more people walking around the dilapidated shopping centre ahead, novices to the world of drinking and partying like her, queuing instead for late-night takeaways. Sarah, a voice croaked. She froze. Far too few people knew who she was in this new city. So who was calling after her? She checked her bag, thinking maybe she had dropped her driving license or her phone, any object where such specific information might have been gleaned from. She slowly turned and breathed a sigh of relief as she saw the source of the voice. It was a young man, a student like herself, slumped against the wall of the underpass, he had sandy blonde hair gelled into a fabricated mess, and his face was framed with patchy stubble. He appeared paralytically drunk, or at least concussed, stumbling and muttering his words, but quite resolute and comfortable with being slouched on the floor. He was awkwardly holding on to the corner of a polystyrene takeaway tray, clearly unbothered or unaware of the fact he had spilled its contents of chips and gravy onto the floor and his own bare legs. He was wearing some kind of society sports kit, garishly yellow and lined with a dark blue, with white shorts that seemed far too impractical for the cold wind. Sarah imagined his name, or at least some derogatory nickname would be emblazoned on the back. Sarah, he continued to slur. He must have recognised her, Sarah considered. They must have met at one of the endless parade of student flat parties from Freshers' Weeks. Sarah had been more a passive observer than an active participant in those dreadful gatherings. She was surprised she had made enough of an impact on this man for him to remember her name. She, at least, had not been trying to make an impression. Still uncertain, but more comfortable due to his incapacitated nature, Sarah crouched beside him. Are you okay? she asked. Do you live in Marketgate? He flapped his hand at her as though batting away her concern. Marketgate, he replied. Yeah. She knew she would be unable to prop him up and walk him the rest of the way. He looked at least a foot taller than her, and stocky too, the way some men become walls of thick muscle when playing contact sports. Is there anyone I can ring? Sarah said helplessly. An ambulance, maybe. No ambulance, he said. Sarah! He frowned, 
and pulled his phone from his shorts pocket, he scrolled with his thumb and pressed a number from his contacts. Sarah's phone rang. There was a familiar cold sensation, like somebody gently breathing on her neck. How did you... She began, but stopped. She looked at the man's shirt and noticed blood on the shoulder that was facing away from her. Sarah, is that you? asked the man, his tone picking up. He pushed the palms of his hands to the floor and propped his body upright, turning to face Sarah, who stared at him in horror. In any other circumstances, this man would have been good-looking, maybe even considered handsome. He was grinning at her, beaming, but Sarah could not return the smile, for blood was pouring down one side of the man's head. It was coming from his eye, and most disturbingly, the dark cavern where an eye should have been. Sarah realised she could see directly through the man's head as though something had pierced and slid through his face. She held her gasp. It was only proper to be courteous, to be careful. He seemed delirious, almost dreamlike. Then came an awful feeling deep within Sarah's gut. He doesn't know he's dead, she thought. She pulled away from him, scrambling upright. I'm sorry, she managed. I, I can't help you. Sarah, don't leave, the man croaked. She turned away, quickening her pace. Don't leave, the man wailed from behind her. Sarah ran and collided with something ahead of her. She fell to the floor and a homeless man leant over her, offering his hand to help her up. Sorry, love, I didn't see you there, he said. I was miles away. Sarah held on to the man's hand, dazed. She looked round. The bear pit was suddenly busy again. There were other homeless people chatting amongst themselves and more young people using the underpass to get to their desired pubs and nightclubs, shouting and hollering. You okay? asked the man. You look frazzled, love. Why is a sheet? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, Sarah lied, still looking around, trying to get a sense of direction, still trying to see if she could see where the man slumped against the wall had disappeared to. Perhaps he just managed to slip away. Perhaps he was just an ordinary drunk who just happened to know her name. An ordinary drunk with a hole in his head. Sarah pulled the ten pound from her purse she'd been saving for her night out and gave it to the homeless man and ran the whole way home. The towering silhouette of her halls had never looked so inviting. Even with its scaffolding rattling in the wind or the collection of silver canisters that glistened in the drains by the road, it felt like a necessary stronghold against whatever terrors lurked in the city it had formed in. After hammering the button to her floor from the lift, Sarah fumbled her key fob back into her room and dove immediately into her bed, pulling the covers to her shoulders still fully clothed. She stared up at the ceiling, the dim light still on basking in the dingy room with a low yellow bask. This couldn't be happening, Sarah thought. Not now, not, not so soon, not after everything. Sarah turned her head on the pillow, trying to scrub away the awful visage of the man in the underpass, with his blonde hair and soft face bruised and bloody, his eye completely missing. No matter how she lay, she could not blot out the next revelation. He had called to her, by name. This was someone who knew her. Despite what she had seen, to her surprise, she slept. Seeing the dead man had drained her so completely it hadn't taken her long to drift away. 
As she dreamt, she remembered being eleven, a few years after her dad had passed away. She was at school in the winter, and there was some commotion at lunchtime. A small semicircle of year seven girls had crowded around something by the back gate of the school, which was adorned by thick bushes and woodland. Something had crawled under the boundary fence, and the girls were carefully and excitedly chatting about the discovery. Oh, he's so cute. I think it's a girl. Here, puss, 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 puss. Sarah moved closer to the front of the circle and saw a slender black cat enjoying the attention he was getting from the children. The other girls were laughing and fawning over the animal, but despite her coat and scarf, Sarah felt a familiar chill. Misty, Sarah called. The cat recognised its name immediately, turning its head towards Sarah and trotting happily over towards her. She let Sarah make a fuss over her, trilling and purring as she scratched and nuzzled behind her ears. That's your cat, one of the other girls said. You must live really close to the school. Yeah, Sarah lied. Yeah, I do. In fact, home was a good twenty miles away. She had to get a bus to school, and then there was another short walk from the station to her front door. There was no way that Misty could have followed her here. She gently picked her cat up, and she purred in her arms. Sarah dropped her voice so only the cat could hear her. You've come to say goodbye too, haven't you? She kissed the top of Misty's head and gently placed her on the ground, where she suddenly took off, scurrying under the fence and out of sight. When she woke, she decided to try and make sense of it all. Her father could have been a dream. It hadn't felt like one at the time, and she could have sworn she was awake. But then people conflate imaginary scenarios with their memories all the time, especially children. She had seen a cat that had looked like Misty when she was at school, and when she returned home that evening, her mother let her know that Misty had been hit by a car. Sarah remembered being upset, but that cold, resigned feeling of grief when you were already expecting the worst. Yes, it could have been another cat, just like she could have been dreaming. But how many coincidences was she willing to afford herself? Then there was a sense of cold, that distinct chill, the goosebumps on the back of her neck and arms. Always the same. She walked into the kitchen to make herself breakfast and was greeted with a cheery hello from Andrea, somehow miraculously up early despite the adventures of her late night. Andrea had either not noticed Sarah's absence from the previous night, or, if she did, seemed unbothered and did not chastise her for it. How about we organise a little flat warming here in a couple of days, she said. Get a few people from my course, and a couple from yours. Sarah shrugged non-committedly, leaving an open opportunity for Andrea to probe further. Oh, come on, she teased, might be fun. Maybe something a bit more relaxed might be a bit more your speed. She winked, drawing the hot mug of tea up to her lips. So she had noticed, Sarah thought. But she was almost touched by her insistence to still include her, despite abandoning the left bank the previous night. Andrea pouted her lips out, moulding her face to one of a pleading child. Sarah nodded, consciously willing her hands not to shake. A party was the last thing she needed. She closed her eyes, trying to suppress another replay of last night's events of the underpass. Maybe a distraction would be a good idea. The week passed without incident, and Sarah managed to focus on other things than the apparition she saw in the underpass. The human mind 
especially when young, has a remarkable elasticity in regards to trauma. By this point, the course had started, and the business and social complexities of the first week in a new environment overtook the mental space Sarah had devoted to the horrors she had experienced that night. She was glad to forget it, and was genuinely excited for the party she found herself in. Andrea had extensively planned for the night's party by purchasing an obscene amount of alcohol. The two quiet foreign exchange students they shared the flat with had resolutely locked themselves in their rooms in preparation, as though they were expecting an air raid rather than a flat warming. Sarah walked into the kitchen to find a crowd of people chatting and awkwardly dancing. One of Andrea's coursemates was leaning out of a window smoking into the night as Andrea taped a Sainsbury's bag precariously over the dim kitchen light to give the room a warm orange glow. Some of Sarah's own coursemates were there, and she was surprised to find herself mingling comfortably amongst them. A mere week in her new environment had given her more of a sense of ease. She scanned the room, pleased to see it was well attended. Andrea was surrounded by the three men she had visited the left bank with, who all looked at her forlornly. The lights made it hard to pinpoint individual people. It was as though the crowd was dancing to the music as one indeterminable mass, and she was happy to let that mass swallow her whole. Sarah began to drift out of the conversation she was having. Her eyes seemed to ease in and out of focus. The muscles in her back tightened, and the hair stood on end on her neck. The orange glow of the room seemed almost invasive now, crimson red and overbearing. The dancing throngs made dark shadows that clung like hooked fingers up the thin walls. She turned and met the eyes of a young man. She gasped as though punched in the throat. The young man was tall, handsome, a mess of blonde hair. He had a self-assured smile but seemed puzzled by the way Sarah was staring at him. She was a stranger to him, but Sarah knew. She had seen him before. He's still got both eyes, she thought. He's not dead. The boy strode towards her and Sarah attempted to back away but found she was rooted to the spot. Hello, the boy said, I'm Tom. He sounded ordinary, alive. He gestured to his cigarette gingerly. Sorry, Andrea said I could smoke in here. I can put it out if you want. No, Sarah breathed. No, no, it's okay. You sure? Tom said, the way you're looking at me, you seem, I don't know, annoyed maybe? Sarah shook her head and made a poor excuse to remove herself from the room. Tom watched her as she left, perplexed. She almost ran to the lift and was thankful to find it was empty, backing into the cool metal rail. Her breaths were sharp and fast. It felt as though her chest had caved in. She walked into the street, looking up at the imposing monolith of her halls, cheap yellow lights piercing the conglomeration of dark stone and loose scaffolding. Her flat window was easy to spot, breaking the pattern in the flat grey concrete with its dark orange light. He's still alive, she said out loud, almost heaving. Her dad had appeared to her to say goodbye. As did the cat. There was no stopping that then. There was no time. Those visitations had appeared far too late for her to act upon them. She was too young, too inexperienced. But this boy, Tom, was still alive. He wasn't even wearing the same clothes as his apparition had. It, it didn't have to be a chance encounter. It could be a warning. 
and in the fear, sickness and confusion, she felt herself nurture the smallest, desperate slither of hope. She could save him. The party had long since finished by the time Sarah returned. She hadn't dared to re-enter, instead needing time to evaluate her next steps. A walk by the harbour had proved fruitless. How did you tell someone you didn't really know that you thought they were in danger? The social graces and intricacies of university were hard enough without announcing, Hello, uh, my name's Sarah. I can see the future. She rattled the door to her kitchen, where Andrea stood in a dressing gown, collecting empty cups and putting them in a bin bag. I was wondering when you would come back, she beamed. What are you doing still awake? Sarah puzzled. Sorry, I'm a bit of a clean freak. I can't really settle unless the place is spotless. She laughed. Makes me a good housemaid, I suppose. Throws good parties with none of the aftermath. Sarah fell into the shared sofa, defeated, letting out a deep sigh. Andrea gave her a knowing nod. You know, before I went to Cambodia, she began, I was quiet as a mouse. Wasn't that social at all. Believe it or not, I was pretty introverted. She placed the bin bag by the recycling and sat next to Sarah, her face a picture of concern. It isn't that. Sarah replied. Thanks, though. I'm not sure how I'd explain it. Where to even begin? It was perhaps the wisest course of action not to attempt to explain the vision she had experienced through her life. She could at least get to know the person she was supposed to save. That could be a start. Who was that boy smoking out the window? She began. Oh, God, that's Tom, Andrea sighed. I told him he was allowed. Sorry, it's not his fault. I didn't know you were funny about smoking. No, no, I'm not. I just feel like I've seen him before. At school? Sarah struggled, not knowing how she could describe how she could place him. I feel a need to apologise to him. I got a bit overwhelmed at the party and just sort of walked out on him in mid-conversation. I don't want him thinking I'm rude. Andrea laughed. I wouldn't worry, she said. He was absolutely hammered. I doubt he even remembers. Yeah, but still, I'd like to. Andrea looked at her coyly, her face twisting slightly into a small smirk. Fine, I can invite him round again. You know, you could have just asked me for his number. Mercifully, her second introduction with Tom was not as awkward as it could have been. Sarah sat across from him some days later in a distressed coffee shop, one of those few characterful independent businesses that had somehow evaded the massed gentrification that had engulfed certain corners of the city. Andrea had at least been sly enough to invite some other people to the gathering, so Sarah meeting Tom looked less conspicuous, but her knowing glances to Sarah endangered the advantages of the subtlety she had carefully engineered. She began to involve the two other people, two unknowns from her course Sarah had never met, in some exclusive conversation, allowing Sarah that necessary window to talk to Tom on her own, without distraction. She apologised and Tom graciously accepted it, although slightly confused. Andrea had been right. He had remembered Sarah, but nothing negative about their interaction. Alcohol had helpfully and loyally removed the details of that particular social faux pas. Tom grinned at her, and Sarah was embarrassed to find herself blushing under his gaze. He seemed genuinely interested in the first few weeks of her sociology course and laughed generously at her jokes. They were actually getting on, which made broaching the topic of the impending danger facing his life far harder. 
At least, if he had been a complete tool, she could have been a bit more blunt. Look, Tom, I think you're going to die, she could have said. Maybe keep your eye away from anything sharp. This was something she could imagine growing to quite like having around. How could you even raise something like being able to see the future, to see ghosts, without getting a recommended impromptu visit from student services? How are you finding campus? she asked. And you're in Marketgate for halls, right? Campus is fantastic. It's such a great environment, he said. Marketgate, not so much. I mean, it's a permanent building site. It's basically a ruin. Sarah nodded in agreement before resuming her questions. Are you in any societies? Ah, oh, God, yeah, he winced. I've joined the Hockey Society. Not really my scene. It's a little bit lads on tour. But, you know, university's all about meeting people outside your comfort zone. Thought I might push about out, learn a new hobby. Well, if you don't enjoy it, Sarah replied, you could always choose something else, a book club or something, something a bit more to do with literature. In Sarah's head, the version of Tom she had seen in the underpass was only a potential future. He had been wearing the society kit that night in the bear pit. If she could get him to change his mind, join something else, maybe what she saw could just be a warning and not come to pass. To be honest, I probably will after Christmas, he laughed, but at least I can say I tried, even if it was just for a term. To Sarah, that was at least a start. All she had to do was convince him to leave his society, to focus his energy and time on something else. That way, he didn't have to become the man she saw propped up in the underpass, that alternative Tom, someone who would be killed by a horrific accident. Maybe all she had to do was lean on his proposal to leave the society altogether by the holidays. But Christmas was mere months away, which meant she had a term to save his life. Weeks passed, and Sarah felt her plan was working, albeit slowly. Tom had become a regular visitor to Andrea and Sarah's flat. They had spent many evenings, the three of them together, getting closer and more intertwined with each other's personal lives. Andrea seemed happy to let them talk alone occasionally, confiding to Sarah in the times Tom had gone home that she quite enjoyed playing matchmaker and watching from the sidelines. Sarah had even begun to talk more openly about herself, even sharing the details she swore she would keep secret in this new environment, such as the death of her father and the relationship with her mother. Getting to know Tom as deeply as this had proved a welcome surprise as well as a necessity for his safety, and as they spent more time together, Sarah began to suspect that maybe Tom had feelings for her. She couldn't allow herself to reciprocate, at least until she knew for certain she could divert the course of future events. There were other things at stake, more important things to tackle before moving on with the distractions and carefree frivolity of student life. It was still unclear about how long this would need to go on for, but the fact she had been seeing Tom as frequently as she had at least meant she could keep an eye on him. His routine was easy to memorise. He did the exact same course as Andrea, so would be on campus most days with her, and on Wednesdays, after lectures, was when he played hockey, at around 5pm. Sarah was still struggling to get him to quit the hockey. The first time she'd seen him in the kit, she'd almost fainted but she still hadn't managed to craft the explanation to him that he may be in mortal danger the longer he wore the kit. Worse still, he seemed to be enjoying it. She thought it may naturally be something he dropped after the first term, the way he had alluded that afternoon in the cafe. 
Every Wednesday she rang him at the end of his hockey practice, trying to sound casually that she was checking up on him and not attending some kind of rowdy after-party. Tom seemed to find this funny, taking it in his stride. Undoubtedly jumping to conclusions and attributing it to Sarah sharing his affections, he liked her, but she certainly wasn't without her quirks, like how she refused to be in the flat with him if he had on his hockey kit. She would always demand he go and change, saying that she couldn't bear the man-swell of sweat and the cheap-printed polyester. She seemed to change the topic every time he mentioned the society, or dismissed it rudely, asking when he was going to give it up. He couldn't understand why she hated it so much, but she was so kind and fun to be around otherwise, it was an easy obstacle to avoid, and as such, he dutifully avoided mentioning his hockey club or turning up in his kit around Sarah. It was strange and unusual, certainly, but too random for him to register it as a red flag. One morning, before a lecture, one of the rare instances Sarah wasn't with him, Tom had asked Andrea about her opinion on the matter, and she just shrugged at him. She has these odd swings, she said, like that time she walked home from the left bank or left the party. I don't think she means any offence by it. Everyone's got these weird things they get funny about. I'm the same with cleaning. He nodded. She was right about those little things, those specific rituals and habits people's lives abided by. I just don't understand what's so upsetting about hockey, he said, confused. Who knows, she laughed. But much more importantly, Tom, when are you going to ask her out? A Halloween party was next on Andrea's social agenda, and she had spent most of the day turning the dingy narrow corridors of the flat into a kind of kitsch-haunted house. The place glowed with orange and green mood lights. Paper pumpkins hung at odd angles, sellotaped to the ceiling. It all seemed garish to Sarah, the kind of storybook horror she had never really been able to enjoy. Films and books about monsters and ghouls seemed redundant to her, almost. She knew the true horrors often came from the uncanny in the ordinary, not from poundland lenticular portraits of ghostly Victorian children and coursemates caked with fake blood waving plastic knives. Sarah had decided to wear skeletal face paint, whilst Andrea had gone for something more stylish, all black, dark lipstick matching a pointed witch's hat. Tom wore some kind of orange prison jumpsuit, with the cheap mask of a killer from an old film. Someone had put Monster Mash over a Bluetooth speaker. Andrea beckoned Tom and Sarah into her bedroom where a man dressed as Freddy Krueger and a woman wearing cat's ears had already flooded the room with thick smoke. For God's sake, Andrea snapped, I said to open a window. She vaulted onto her desk to press in the small clasp to allow some fresh air into the room, escorting the two intruders back to the kitchen and the welcoming arms of the rest of the gathering. Tom choked on the smog, laughing. He removed his rubber mask so as not to suffocate. Bloody hell, that's strong stuff, he coughed. Least the fog adds to the atmosphere. Andrea put a torchlight under her chin, smoke dancing in the beam. It was a dark and stormy night, she began. Tom rolled his eyes, looking to Sarah to see if she shared his bemusement. Come on, it's Halloween, Andrea said. When better to tell a ghost story? Tom and Sarah 
sat cross-legged on the floor as Andrea began telling an outlandish ghost story, something loose and vague about a phantom nun, undoubtedly borrowing huge elements from films she half-remembered, or from the gothic classics she had been expected to pore over as part of her reading list. As she drunkenly struggled to remember the ending, Sarah felt herself grow more uncomfortable. The effect was instantly sobering. She did have a ghost story to tell, and a very specific audience who needed to hear it. Andrea spluttered aimlessly towards the final twist of her retelling, prompting a sarcastic slow clap from Tom. Like you could do any better, she challenged. Watch me! He winked at Sarah, who only managed a small, weak smile in response. His own story was much more concise, albeit one she had already heard as a recognisable children's campfire tale. Tom was relishing putting on different voices for his cavalcade of characters, clearly trying to impress Sarah with his performance. His efforts were wasted. Sarah felt numb, but knew it was the perfect opportunity to tell Tom about the apparition of him that she had seen. Tom's own story came to a more satisfying ending, and Andrea conceded defeat. Both pairs of eyes looked expectantly at Sarah, willing her to tell her own tale daring her to outmatch their lurid descriptions and outlandish fiction. Sarah's throat was dry, and she shut her eyes. When I was a kid, I saw my dad at the foot of my bed. The night he died, she began. The warmth and playful atmosphere of the room changed immediately at the mention of her father. There was more gravity suddenly to the proceedings a profundity that had been lacking from the far-fetched yarns of ghostly monasteries and headless horsemen. Sarah wasn't even thinking anymore. Her words had almost fallen out of her. She had been rehearsing and editing how she would tell the story internally for so many weeks. She was surprised to hear the story come out of her, almost involuntarily, with such clarity. She described the death of her father, her trips to counselling, seeing Misty at the school gates, the years of denial, the refusal to admit to herself that she had been given some kind of gift or sight. A story had reached the most awful terminus, seeing Tom propped upright under the flickering strobe of the underpass, blood pooling around a fatal raw cavern where part of his face should have been. Tom had turned white. The way Sarah was talking there was no enjoyment in the story. It was clinical, methodical. There was no unnecessary embellishments, no sense of imaginary grotesqueries. The true horror was how matter-of-factly Sarah described what she had seen. The room was silent, with impossible things lingering in the air. Sarah had finished, not bringing herself to talk about hypothetical futures. She sighed with relief, the effort of saying what she needed to say physically exhausting her. Tom smiled at his face an unconvincing mask to how he was feeling. He let out a nervous chuckle, looking to Andrea, who returned it with an uncertain grimace, clearly trying to determine the tone and validity of what Sarah had just said. Sarah herself simply looked ahead at Tom, hoping her steely gaze and seriousness would convey the grim reality that he needed to understand. You got me there, Tom laughed. Bit dark, though. Sarah ignored him, clearly in the flow of it now. 
I saw you, she whispered. Even before we met, I saw you. You were dead. All right, Andrea said. You've clearly won here, Sarah. No need to keep going. Listen to me, Sarah interrupted. This isn't a story. This happened. I think I can see the future. I think I've always been able to. When people are in a crisis or near the end, very occasionally, I've seen them. You saw your dad, Tom questioned, a patient tone in his voice as though tiptoeing around someone increasingly fragile. And a cat, when you were a kid. Look, people imagine weird stuff all the time, especially in grief. Sarah started to cry. It was perhaps too much of an ask to have expected her friends to believe her unconditionally. Tom held her hands to try and comfort her, but she shook him away, hurt that he was trying to rationalise what she already knew to be fact. Please, listen to me, she sobbed. You have to do what I say. It isn't too late. I can save you. You just have to stay with us. Or what, Tom said monotonously. I'll end up dead, calling out to you with a hole in my head. He stood up, motioning to leave. He'd had enough. Sarah sank lower to the floor, defeated, knowing she had pushed it too far. Make sure she gets some water, he said to Andrea. Where are you going? Sarah called after him. Tom didn't respond, a frown slowly forming on his face, and walked out of the room. Wednesday morning, the bus to the campus was cramped and hot and stank of stale coffee. Tom struggled to settle in his seat, fighting off the overwhelming tiredness from a night of interrupted sleep. He thought it was embarrassing, really, the way Sarah had managed to rattle him with a ghost story, so much so that he had left the room and party entirely. He was too old to believe any of that, too socially agnostic to put any stock in anything that wasn't at least scientifically proven with multiple witnesses. The fact the story was so specific to him, about him getting hurt, had stung. He had absorbed it with a palpable shock, as though he had been personally threatened. It didn't sit well with him. Sarah had told him and Andrea about her dad dying before, and that was a hard thing to comprehend without his own frame of reference. He had listened and tried to empathise when she spoke about her father's cancer when she was nine, but it was impossible to understand, to even picture just how different his upbringing would have been if the same had happened to him. Nothing he had ever experienced had been comparable to the death of a parent when you yourself are so young, that unplaceable, uniquely personal grief. But for her to then use the death of her father to give her own pretend story, that sense of weight, it seemed sick. It wasn't right, and it seemed so out of character to what he knew about Sarah. Tom realised that he hadn't really known her for that long. It had just felt like such an intense, long-lasting friendship due to them being cooped up together in halls, having the same shared life. He rubbed his eyes, leaning his head into the cold, condensed window of the bus, coddling the mild throbs of a dull hangover, determined to not let a fairy tale make him feel any worse. The day of university had ended. Tom felt it was a day wasted. His lectures had glazed over him as he struggled to concentrate. That deep feeling of unease, of a disrupted constitution, had kept his mind on other things beyond his studies. 
He was not sure if it was simply the delayed aftershock of his indulgences of the party, or his falling out with Sarah that had so massively shifted his equilibrium. Despite everything, he ran through the motions of his regular routine, getting changed into his society sports kit. His evening had been planned methodically to the minute. The next bus would take him back to his halls before getting an immediate second bus to the other end of the city to engage in another evening of hard drinking with his hockey team, with the only shared common interest being a uniform and a propensity to not consider the next morning. Tom's stomach buckled. He had pushed himself too far the previous night. It would be unwise to repeat the last evening's mistakes if he was still grappling with the consequences. His gut was willing him to cancel, to apologise and not attend, to have an earlier night watching the TV in the comfort of his own dorm room. More than anything, he wanted to see Sarah and clear the air with her. Even if she was telling mad stories, clearly something had unsettled her. He needed to get to the bottom of it, try and unpick whatever had really happened to her. It must have been something terrible for her to paper over the cracks of her psyche with a story so unpleasant. He pulled out his phone and began to write a short text to the head of the society, explaining how he wasn't feeling himself, that he was worried he was coming down with something, the full remit of classic vague excuses. The bus was pulling into its final stretch, turning haphazardly around the sharp roundabout, the second story of the double-decker feeling as though it may topple, too heavy and dangerous. Market-gate halls descended from the fog, a grey blight freckled with small yellow room lights, static and unfriendly. Tom stepped off the bus, looking up to the top floors, grimacing at the loose exoskeletal scaffolding that seemed to be buttressing the building up against the elements itself. It was as stark as it was unwelcoming, far removed from anything remotely resembling the warm, embracing comforts of home. He was almost relieved to see that Sarah was waiting for him, arms folded. Tom walked towards her an uncertain smile on his face, attempting to break the ice with an unspoken acknowledgement of the frigid tension in the air. Sarah winced, looking down at his kit. Hey, Tom began, have you been waiting long? Sarah shook her head. Ten minutes, she said. I just needed to see you before you got your second bus. Tom sighed. He had hoped that this discussion would not need to happen, that they would just put it down to silly comments being exchanged by two people who had simply gotten drunkenly carried away. Listen, about last night, Tom started tactfully. I'm sorry I overreacted. I can see that now. I should have texted you this morning, but my, my head's been such a mess. Sarah nodded, wordlessly accepting the apology. Tom furrowed his brow slightly as though expecting one in return, though it was clear to see from her face that Sarah felt there was nothing that she needed to apologise for. What you said last night, Tom continued, now, I'm not saying you saw what you said you saw, but if you did see someone really badly hurt, then you know you can talk to me. I'm not a liar, if that's what you mean, she snapped defiantly, cutting him off. I would never lie to my friends, not ever. Tom bit his lip, frustrated. She was resolute. There was no reaching a sense of compromise in this discussion, no agreeing to disagree. Sarah had concreted herself into her own side of things and would not be pivoted out from her own foundations. I know it sounds ridiculous, she said. I, I know I sound mad. 
but I've just got the feeling that something awful is going to happen to you if you go out tonight with your team. Tom couldn't even reply. Sarah could feel tears starting to form in her eyes. Please, you don't have to believe me, she pleaded. But just humour me. If I'm wrong, there's no real loss, is there? But if I'm right... Look, relax, he said calmly. I, I shouldn't have stormed off last night. I, I know that. You just spooked me, is all. It doesn't matter. I'm not going tonight anyway. I, I just feel a bit off. Sarah ran into him, holding him in a crushing embrace. Tom laughed, surprised and winded. Not that you got me scared or anything, he made sure to tell her. I just don't feel great. Really done a number on myself. Sarah pulled away, beaming. Well, what are you doing instead? Watching the TV, being lazy, feeling sorry for myself. I mean, you and Andrea are welcome to join. She kissed him on the cheek and he blushed intensely. If nothing else, he was just pleased to see her happy again. It was a chance to move forward, to bury her ghost story, to not dwell on any unnatural premonition she claimed to have seen. Look, you're going up, he said, gesturing to his unlit cigarette. Choose something good on Netflix or something. I'll be up in a minute. Sarah held the sides of her arms and tried to warm herself from the cold wind, encouraging him not to be too long. He waved her off as she went inside, lighting the cigarette between his fingers. The hit of nicotine was instant and invigorating. It was as though he felt alive for the first time that day, more alert than back to his old self. It was only then that he realised he hadn't even eaten for the whole day, having not wanted to make his stomach any worse with early morning cereal and caffeine. He glanced at the takeaway, mere metres away from his hall's building, and felt a deep craving of intense hunger. The emptiness needed to be placated to help put himself back together entirely so he could face the next day with a factory reset rather than trudging through in an odd sort of haze. Something filled with grease and salt, the kind of meal only justified when feeling weak and shaky. He looked into the chip shop, relieved to see there was no queue. He ordered his usual preferences automatically, quickly taking a handful of yellow polystyrene filled with chips and gravy. Tom exited, letting the warm steam bask his face. His mood and demeanour had shifted entirely with his purchase. With such good spirits, he might even be persuaded to share it. He heard someone yell and felt a chill descend upon his neck and looked up. Sarah and Andrea sat on their shared sofa. Sarah, a small remote in her hand, Andrea, a hot mug of tea. The windows had become opaque with condensation as one of the silent residents of the flat boiled something slowly on the hob already in his dressing gown. Andrea stood on the sofa, balancing one hand against the wall and wiping the window with her sleeve, opening the clasp to let some air in. Sarah had settled for something to watch, something light and airy that they would have undoubtedly watched before. A comfort watch, safe and unthreatening, now that the status quo had returned back to normal. It was hard to relax properly without Tom, but he was a mere cigarette away from joining her. She pressed play on the TV programme she had selected, something optimistic and American, with lots of colour and a laugh track that told you when you were supposed to find it funny. Andrea sang tunelessly along with the theme tune, but Sarah was struggling to pay attention. It was as though the TV was miles away, as though the floor of the kitchen was stretching away from her. 
The colours on screen seemed to flatten. The laughter, normally so joyous, muffled into a slow, awful chorus. Sarah's teeth began to chatter and she could see her own breath. She thought of Tom, smiling, happy, safe. No! The same cold. The same chill. They both heard a yell. One of the workmen on the scaffolding, a sharp, guttural scream of panic. Oh my God, did you see that? Andrea gasped, her face pressed to the window. Something must have fallen from the roof. It was as though all the air had left the room. Sarah ran to the window beside Andrea, pressing her face against the glass, trying to see what was happening on the street below. From the height of their floor, it was hard to truly decipher details. A crowd below had formed into half-crescents around a single figure splayed on his back. Andrea was talking frantically in shock, but Sarah couldn't even make out the words she was saying like she was speaking underwater. There was the distant promise of ambulance sirens, but Sarah knew it was hopeless. She found herself rushing downstairs along with a growing stream of morbidly curious students who had all converged into the lifts and stairwells to see what was going on outside. There were already whispers, rumours, half-sightings and falsehoods lit kindling for those intrigued as to what had happened. They said someone had gotten hurt, that someone had gotten killed. A scaffolding pole had fallen from eight stories up. Swells of people rushed outside for that definitive confirmation. As Sarah made her way onto the concrete once more, she turned her back to the crowd and the arriving ambulance. There would be no sense of closure if she saw what happened next. Instead, she faced the grey building, a giant tombstone defiant in the low fog, a thousand yellow eyes unblinking. The workmen had stopped skittering like ants, instead still looking mournfully to the street-level chaos beneath them. Andrea wailed as a body was loaded onto a stretcher. A boy, dressed in shorts and a t-shirt despite the cold, lifeless, soaked in thick blood and a splatter of half-eaten food. Sarah closed her eyes. She didn't need to look at the body on the street. He had made himself known to her long ago. She already knew who it was. She had already known for some time. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back? Uh, welcome, Lewis Darley, to the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. And I was just going to introduce it by saying how how it how it came about that you are here. So, it must be six months ago now. You kind of contacted me, and you were working on a story which people will have just heard called "The Premonition," set in Bristol. And um, uh, the idea was that we were going to do a soundtrack for an animated film. And we we did this. We did this. I did read the story for you first, and then then time went by, didn't it? And the year went by, and and it's now December, and I think it was maybe even March when we first got in touch. So tell me some. So that's a, the preamble, really. So tell me about yourself. So you know as much as you want to say about where you are, what you do, and things like that. Okay. Well, my name's Lewis. Uh, I work as a 
copywriter and a video editor, but I like to write short fiction in my spare time. And so I'd like to do that more often. Um, specifically kind of a lot of horror fiction. I kind of delve into lots of stuff, but there's a lot of ghost stories and the kind of weird stories and that sort of thing. Um, and I was looking for a way to merge my interests of video editing and illustration uh, with my fiction writing. Hence why I kind of contacted you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, tell me about the, um, where are you based, by the way? I'm based in Nottingham at the minute, uh, but I was a student in Bristol. That's why I set it there. Yeah, I was I was hearing that accent uh, as you were talking. I was thinking, oh, Bristol, but because it was clearly you know Bristol well. I know Bristol um, from about eight years ago when I was a student. So it's the classic kind of gothic literature thing of it's sort of set in the near distant past, <laughs> but not quite the uh, current version of Bristol. So I don't know if all the pubs I mentioned are still there. I don't even know if the student halls are still there, but um, that was my experience of Bristol in about yeah eight years ago. But I think that's true, isn't it? Um, even the great Mr. James, the stories when he wrote, he the stories he wrote weren't contemporary to the time he wrote them. They were reaching back into his, um, not necessarily youth, but earlier life, and that's true for everybody, I think. But um, so, what were you doing in Bristol? I studied illustration, uh, so I went to art school there. I was there for three years, and it was kind of where my interest in ghost stories and horror kind of came from was being a student i wasn't really into horror at all um before and then i got very into sort of ghost films and literature around that sort of time so i, I wanted to kind of merge that and i think the student halls and how oppressive i found it initially i thought was a really interesting kind of starting point to like a horror story from because it is such a mad environment to find yourself in if you've never lived away just you're in this new and place with loads of strangers and it's kind of quite unsettling and i thought there's something interesting there to write stories about you know a ghost story set in student halls i i agree so uh, tell me which uh, i was intrigued and in, which ghost films and literature were you how did that happen and what were um oh well the classic one i mean we did the woman in black at school and i remember that was the first time i'm thought oh there's something here and it it's i always think that's really interesting because it comes across like a really kind of early 20th century bit of writing and then you find out it's from the early 80s and it's kind of written to feel like it was written ages ago but it but it isn't um but then there's stuff like i liked harry by i think it's rosemary <laughs> yeah rosemary Timperley. Timperley, yeah. yeah um man-made marble but you know, those kind of ones where they're, they're a bit more classic and they, they really set up what's going to happen quite early on. It's like, if you do this, this will happen. And the narrator's always like, ah, no. Or the uh, protagonist says, that's not going to happen. But then it does. I, I love the kind of, there's quite an obvious payoff, but there's a, something quite dark and delicious about going, I know what's going to happen, but it might not. <laughs> yeah, dramatic irony. We know what's going to happen or we can foresee it, can't we? And they, they don't seem to get it, even though it's that's a classic horror movie thing is do not go into the into the cellar. Why would you go into the cellar? But they always do. You're writing then. So, I mean, is it, you're saying it's mainly horror fiction and ghost stories and things like that. So where where have you done that? How has that been expressed? It's really just for my own kind of amusement at the minute. Um, at university, I did write a lot of children's books and graphic novels. So that was part of my degree. And then I graduated just before COVID and uh, kind of had to find 
work that was sort of related to my degree, but not really. So a lot of kind of creative roles, more the video editing side of it and more the uh, design side of it as as my um, the stuff I learned when I was at university. But I did a lot of kind of narrative fiction on top of that through my studies. Um, the, recently, I've tried to write more kind of long form stuff. So that's why the, the premonition, I think it's about or I don't know, actually, well, maybe 6,000 words, but that kind of... I, I do about, I narrate about 1,000 words every 10 minutes, so that would be about right. But copywriting, though, so how did that happen? Kind of by accident, really. Um, I worked as a video editor with copywriting as part of my role. I mean, that's still my job. I still make, uh, it's content creator. I sort of dabble in a lot of stuff, so it would be social media posts, web building, uh, designing it and then also writing the copy. So it's just a way of for myself. Like, well, I'm paying my way through writing and making stuff, even if it isn't the sort of stuff I want to make long term. It keeps me ticking over, and that's quite a nice feeling to me. Well, it's still my writing; it's still making. And also, it it is. I think you know whatever you're writing, writing is writing, and and it kind of builds that muscle in that particular part of your brain. You know, yeah, because there's like a, there's um. I think it's Stephen King was saying about right trying to write a thousand words a day, and there was a long time I was like, "Well, I'm not doing that." And then I realised I was just for work. <laughs> um, I wasn't doing it at home, but and I was like, oh, "I really should be writing more fiction." Yeah, 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 you are. Yeah. Before I realised that, I was getting into the habit, like you say, training that muscle of writing kind of constantly. So that was quite good to come back and realise, oh, I could do it if I put my mind to it it's just the mechanics of, of putting a sentence together and how you know where you put your where, where you put your claws how you balance your claw i'm quite interested in sentences you know so and that and and the copywriting always seems to me the very nitty-gritty of that which the words themselves you know you might not even write a lot of stuff but you know you, the words the placement of the words themselves there's even little things like how aggressive does that come across or how um passive does it sound a lot of the stuff i do is you know it's for like advertising so you want to make it this is the best thing ever but also um you don't want to be too putting it forward and too irritating as well so yeah it's, it's a really interesting job for sure jumping back to the premonition um it felt and i mean this in a, in a complimentary way it felt and okay it's set um as you were saying about eight years ago really but um it felt Victorian almost in its um, in its structure because, as you say, in that story also we can we kind of guess what's happening before it happens, and and we're led to you know it's almost like um, the one that, the story that popped into my mind was this Charles Dickens is the signal man. Yes, yeah. It, he revisits it, and I think it's a similar thing, isn't it? The, the revisits the. Uh, he well, he visits the signalman three times, and each time it's kind of moving. Excuse me, moving forward towards its doom, and um, the 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 listener, the reader, understands that maybe before the protagonist does. Well, I'm a big fan of the signalman, so even though I don't think I consciously chose to emulate it, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something ticking away whilst I was writing it. And that happens as well. I, I really like the idea of the kind of um, I've always found there's a lot of horror in predestination and this kind of preordained future. Um, the idea that you can't really change it. So it is almost kind of a time travel story as well. She keeps getting these visions, but it's also she can't change it. There's nothing she can do. 
it's just going to happen and the horror is that she knows it's going to happen but doesn't matter what she tries it will still play out the same way and then the the final the horrific end thing with the fall from the building isn't it mm. the idea was you're going to do an animated it's going to be a fairly dark animated piece that but uh, how's that going I'm getting to grips with it because I'm not a I'm not an animator. I didn't study animation, so it's very kind of limited. But it's to set myself the challenge to learn new softwares. So I've been piecing it together on After Effects just to sort of learn how to use it, just to give myself a project to go. Well, sometimes the best way to learn something is to just be dropped in it, uh, and that's been my approach. Yeah, I love that idea though. But go on, you were saying I interrupted you, sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, yeah, so at the minute, there's a lot of hand drawing. So all the characters I do are hand-drawn, and I scan them in. All the backgrounds are hand-drawn, but then they're stitched together digitally, and I kind of move them around kind of with the sort of digital cameras in the, in the apps I'm using. So it's a, it's a learning curve. The, I've, I've, I've mainly done lots of tests for it at the minute, really. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm liking what I've done so far. <laughs> Because of all these things, you know, we've heard your writing and uh, we've heard your ideas, but I mean, but, you know, you were an illustrator or, you know, you are many things, as it turns out, many content creation, many strands and and media, uh, multimedia. That was a, a phrase at one point, wasn't it? But yeah. So where is your art then? Where where can people see your illustrations? I'm curious to see it. Oh, well, um, I'm Dali Makes Art on I think all of so all of my socials will have that same so like Instagram and I was going to say Twitter but it's changed now isn't it it's like X or something. <laughs> um yeah and Facebook so I don't do huge amounts of kind of um I'd say like dark illustrations so there wouldn't be a lot of horror themed illustrations but they'd more be little quirky prints and stuff uh, little kind of pencil drawings D A R L E Y um as in your surname not not D A L I no <laughs> As as often gets pointed out, it's uh, no. Unfortunately, I can't uh, sell my work for much more. <laughs> Why, but... You know, I only just got that then. You know, and I think, oh right, okay, that's a good name for an artist. Oh yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very lucky with it. There's and when I was studying, I knew a lot of people who changed their name because you know to try and make it into a market, you want to have a name that stands out. That art directors are going to go, oh, I remember that name. But it was oh, quite wow, yeah. So I know a lot of people who. Uh, use their middle name as their surname for their like like a stage name almost but for their art, art name but i was quite nom de plume yeah as it would be if you're writing yeah now i don't know why my mind has just jumped because you're not you actually in nottingham yeah uh, yes yeah so nottingham nottingham's got a lot of atmosphere to it i always think you know so what about ghosts and stuff in nottingham do you think that was relevant i think that's part of your inspiration um well i was living i was living in Nottingham when I wrote it I was kind of looking back at being a student and there's there's a lot of kind of ghost stories in Bristol uh, I researched it for one of my university projects just going to all these old pubs where the landlord would say oh there's someone with like a metal brace that walks on the upstairs and you can hear it kind of clinking and clanking and there's there's like a phantom monk that goes through the wall so I was really interested and so when I moved here one of the things I really wanted to do was to go on one of the ghost tours because it's such a great way to learn the kind of folklore of a new place. The only thing I knew about Nottingham, because I moved for work, but the only thing I really knew about it was, you know, the football team and Robin Hood. So when I, when I moved here and I got to be shown around 
all the kind of cave systems under the pubs and there's like the a caves are amazing the caves are absolutely amazing aren't they? oh they're great i did i think i'm not sure if it was a ghost tour it was about five years ago or um because there's a museum as well isn't it in the caves yes uh, uh, and um there was a lady dressed up and we went down from the castle into the caves and round, and if people haven't been to nottingham in the caves and they've got an interest they should really need to go um, it's old um, British name before the Anglo-Saxons came was something like Trevoragova, you know, the, the town of caves. So it's been known as caves since Roman times, you know. And um, um, and then, of course, I mean, I know it's a bit corny, but I really love the old trip to Jerusalem as a pub built out of this sandstone Um it's just such a great atmosphere. And supposedly the the oldest pub in England dating back to the Crusades, isn't it? So they say. Yeah, so they say. It's got a haunted ship in it as well, hasn't it? It's got the haunted galleon. Do you know, I, I've missed that one or I've known it and forgotten it. So tell me the story of the haunted galleon. So if you go upstairs in the trip to Jerusalem, there's a model of a ship and it's covered in cobwebs and there's a sign that says, well, the story goes that anyone who's cleaned it has ended up dead so it never gets cleaned <laughs> but also it's from hundreds of years ago so you assume they would eventually die if they had cleaned it yeah, yeah died of old age eventually yeah <laughs> oh exactly yeah but but i don't think anyone's taking the chance because look you can barely see that it's a boat it's all kind of covered in kind of like it's almost like cotton wool at this point the amount of cobwebs on it it's a great bit of a um, great story and we should be paid by the Nottingham uh, Tourist Board for that. You oh, know? yeah. Anybody, anybody listening that wants to get, you know, Nottingham's a really interesting place. And, of course, as you said, Robin Hood and everything as well. But Bristol is as well. I remember doing a um, – that I, that job you had, I know it wasn't a proper job, of going around pubs asking people about the ghost, the landlord. That sounds my ideal job, to be fair. Mm. Not so much, you know, that wandering around at midnight with it, you know, around some – that's all right. But going to a pub and, and – uh, that that's a, there's a bit more comfort in it. Mm. Um, I remember there was a, doing a, a thing about the Hotwell's ghost. There was a very famous haunting. I don't know if you know that one. Um, it was before before it was at this time of Hotwell's being built up as a spa, and there was an old house there, and it was a massively famous haunting in its time, probably from the early I want to say early 1800s. I didn't know, but uh, but Bristol again. Bristol's full of ghosts as well. That's, that's really funny because I used to live in Hot Wells and I never heard that one. <laughs> I used to live right on that area. I'll send you the link no, to I'll it. Have to yeah, absolutely. Yeah, famous. Yeah, but uh, Bristol's one of those cities who uh, I think I was last there. I, I can't even think how long ago. It was a long time ago. Uh, but I drive through it every now and again on the M5 and look down, you know, but that's about as close as I get to it. Or, or, if, the, or if the sat nav uh, decides to take you. You know, Google Maps says that this is a shortcut and takes you through a few housing estates that you would never otherwise have gone. That happened to me in uh, happened to me in Bath and in Bannockburn of all places. Um, it's t- near Stirling. End up going through this really quite rough housing estate, thinking, do you know, I would never ever have, have uh, gone here if it hadn't been for the satnav. Anyway, so so any kind of ETA, if that's a word for the animated film. I'm not sure. Hopefully, at a midpoint of next year. So I think I've got to the point where I maybe overestimated how much I was going to be able to do. Um, I remember you sending me the recording of the story, and I couldn't believe how long the recording was. Because um, you get you get into the habit. I think when you read your own stories, you kind of you can read it quite quickly, can't you? You can just 
scanned. Especially if you've if you've if you're on draft eighteen, and and you've read it a load of times, and you just bet it just you zip through it. Yeah. So so I think realistically, I'll I'll probably choose a kind of choice scenes that I think might entice people to read the full story. I think that's the plan. So I'd like to do the introduction and the scenes where she meets the kind of ghost of the boy and those those kind of scenes i think are the ones i'd like to work on and then kind of pepper that out as much as i can sounds like it'll keep you busy anyway oh definitely <laughs> anyway it's been really nice talking to you so i guess people if they just watch this space and what if when it, when it does come out let me know and uh, and we'll kind of talk about it. And I'd really, I'm really, I'd be excited to see it. To be honest, but finally, I'm glad we did manage to speak after all the uh, all the months. Me too. Is it, have you got any links or anything you need me? To, uh, I could put in the show notes. Um, I can send you the link to my website because there's some short writing there. So I think that's uh, maybe the social medias. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Oh, you too. Thank you very much. Well, that was Lewis Darley. What a nice chap. Um, and so once he does, he's, he's going to do this animated film of at least parts of this story, the premonition. So when I find out that it's out, I'll let you know, okay? All right. Thanks for listening. Um, speak to you again soon. Isn't that so? Isn't that so?